The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. There's you know, a lot of value to be had to society from having transactions on a peer-to-peer basis that don't have intermediate third parties involved. Because intermediate third parties always, when you have a broker between two people wanting to transact, that broker takes a piece. Takes a chunk, you got it. And you know, Bitcoin solves that problem. That's the revolutionary ingredient in these blockchain projects. Hey all, it is Joe here and welcome to the episode. I cannot, seriously, I cannot wait to get started on this thing. This is one of my favorite areas in technology as it relates to the legal industry, bar none. We're talking about the wonderful wild world of cryptocurrency and blockchain. We get into some pretty technical stuff, but not too technical. But what I wanna do to help solve for that, if you're not as technical, this is going to be your primer. I hope to get you to the point where this makes sense. Honestly, I just really want this to make sense so it resonates for you because this is transformative stuff that we are all to a one going to experience over the next handful of years. So today I have Doug Pepe, who's partner at Joseph Haig Aronson. Cannot wait to get to that conversation. Now, let's talk about the bigger, broader picture of what the heck blockchain is, why it means anything to the legal industry, why it means something to you personally as well. So blockchain, from all things, blockchain comes from Bitcoin. Believe it or not, in whatever, 2009, when Bitcoin came out, they wrote a white paper. No one knows to this day day who the heck wrote that white paper, Um, but it set out in these nine pages to say, you know what? The system is broken. We currently have organizations that are going under, large banks going under in 2008, 2009 during the financial crisis. What can we do to change the dynamic? How can we fix that? We have single points of failure. So let's say it's a large bank that has all their information in one location, one massive database. Let's split that up. Let's change it so that it's a distributed layer, so that there are thousands, tens of thousands of servers or computers all running the same software that are interacting, that are confirming that transactions are happening. They're storing information, the redundancy, the encryption, all of that is there. It's amazing. Same sort of bank level encryption. It's immutable. means that once you've put something into the blockchain, it's there permanently. Yeah, for better, for worse, right? So... If we start to look at that in the bigger picture, blockchain, if I'm to define it quite simply, it's a database that's distributed and it's redundant. It doesn't have human intervention. It's been programmed so that it's a a third party that's trusted. That's the fundamental basis of blockchain. Now, some key components of this that we talk about very briefly, but are important to be aware of are public keys and private keys. What the heck does that mean? Well, if you have a digital wallet, that's really leveraging that blockchain, which means that the digital wallet's referring to the blockchain. So it's making a call to the blockchain saying, hey, do I have ownership of this? Um, If I do, what's in that wallet? So you have both a private key and a public key. The public key is something that you basically can show anybody. And if somebody wants to send you a document, they wanna send you money, maybe it's Bitcoin or some other currency, you give them that address, and then it goes into, it's confirmed on the blockchain, by the miners, which basically says, hey, does this money, should it be transferred over to the other person? Good, yes, then we'll save it permanently to the blockchain, and now it's theirs. The private key means that you personally have ownership of it. 
If you have that private key and nobody else has it, no one can break into it. That's that's the theory. That's what we're seeing play out so far. So where does this evolve to as it relates to the legal industry? Well, that's one. You could talk about cryptocurrencies and money and money laundering and all of the tax implications of those types of things. But I want to draw your attention to something that's bigger, far more vast and really, really important. So maybe 2016, 13, 14, eh, reverse order there, along came a Russian student at Waterloo University in Canada. His name is Vitalik Buterin. And he developed this idea as like, hey, Bitcoin's amazing, but it's really just a currency and I can send money back and forth, whoop-de-doo. It doesn't even, it's not even that efficient, but you don't have to go through banks, you don't have to go through government agencies. That's cool, but what can we do to build onto that so that any asset, any asset that you have, be it your car, be it your flat, your house, um, your uh, Picasso on the wall, you can tokenize. You can basically take the value of that and represent it online in a secure place such that if you want to sell that, you want to break that thing up. And in London, they've done this recently, they've taken a building, a commercial building, and they've turned it into a tokenized building. So when they wanted to sell it, let's say it was worth 150 million pounds, they're able to break that up. And so people, an individual like myself, could buy $5 worth of that building. It'd be done via a cryptocurrency that was on the blockchain, secure and safe. But then you have this whole new world of, of scale and bringing in people into the fold around things that maybe if you didn't have the money, you couldn't partake in. So all of these things start to come together. That tokenization of assets means that if I have that car and I want to tokenize the car, a digital token on my digital wallet says that I have ownership of that. I want to sell it. So basically I meet the buyer, the buyer's like, yep, I want it. Um, here's the money, the money goes into an escrow, and then I can literally digitally send that token to that individual very easily, very quickly. So why does this have uh, an important component around the legal industry? Well, if you can tokenize assets, think about all the practice areas that touches. Contracts, when we're talking about contracts, or we're talking about even the litigation side and looking at the, the contracts that have had problems, if you can, um, program into that contract something where, and it goes onto the blockchain, that the value of something, let's say it's Amazon stock is $2,500. And I talk about this a little bit later, $2,500. And it should sell, if it's at that level, it needs to sell on January 1st of 2022. There's all these little programmable pieces that you could put into a contract that makes it verifiable, that makes it secure, and these are the components that you're going to start to see within the litigation side, as well as the contractual side. Uh, very topical as all this stuff is taking off. It really, I uh, hate to say this word, at an exponential rate. Um, two other quick things before we hand it over to really start diving into this with Doug. We bring up Wyoming. Wyoming is a leader in this space when we're talking about um, the legislation that's been built out around how we should deal with cryptocurrencies, blockchain, how uh, companies are formed in this space. Really fascinating stuff. Lastly, Facebook. You may love them. You may hate them. Um, they are coming out with their own cryptocurrencies. It's been talked about for the last year-ish or so. Um, we're moving into this world where every single country is going to have their own cryptocurrency. 
uh, i.e. their own digital dollar, their digital pound, their digital euro. And private companies are trying to do the same thing. So Facebook could flip a switch and allow themselves to have their token, their currency, their money in the hands of two point, let's say 5 billion people overnight. Imagine the scale, the way to, to collaborate, to send money back and forth. It's going to transform the way that we interact across the board. So with that said, that's the context. We're going to jump into a lot of these pieces. Doug Pepe is here with me. Really looking forward to this. So let's get started. The hearing. It's wonderful to have Doug Pepe, uh, commercial litigator and partner at Joseph Haig Arison. Is that right? Haig, yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So lovely having you. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, it's a it's a privilege to uh, to be a participant in this podcast. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Yeah. I think there's um, a lot of good topics that we're going to talk about today. So. Great. First and foremost, uh, tell me if I go askew here, but uh, you went to Columbia Law School and yeah. studied mathematical um, microeconomics. Is that right? Macroeconomics. Okay. So as an undergraduate, not at law school. Okay. But yes, I studied mathematical macroeconomics. And you have been a huge fan of blockchain and distributed ledger for a little while? I have, yeah, for, uh, for several years now. So are you Satoshi Nakamoto? <laughs> <laughs> no, clearly not. Satoshi was a genius. Um, uh, no, uh, I actually have an interesting uh, little story if you want to hear it. But yeah, I got involved in, in blockchain. Um, it started out with my, uh, my, my two kids, my two boys. I have four children and uh, they're gamers. They're really interested in, uh, you know, gaming PCs and gaming and that sort of thing. And um, uh, my, my really close friend has uh, owns a tech company. And he had the idea. The two of us were, uh, were, were going to put together gaming PCs with our kids, his son and my my two kids. Okay. So we uh, we got some parts. I think he ordered them. Uh, got them out off a of new egg and uh, laid them out on the table. And uh, and we had our young children, you know, basically build computers with wow. us. And uh, so you know, I took we took the gaming PC that we we built home. And um, you know, I had been reading about Bitcoin and blockchain and that sort of thing. And I decided to uh, start trying to mine it. Really. Um, and I think that I called it at the time digging. I mean, I didn't even <laughs> you know it's very basic stuff. So I uh, plugged it in, started learning how to mine, and uh, within about you know two or three weeks, um, the two of us together were ordering as many GPUs as we could get off, off the internet and building miners at you know late at night and oh you know, putting together crazy contraptions to exhaust the heat and you know really you know fun stuff. But anyway, I started as a miner um, with my friend, and we we both started basically uh, because we built gaming PCs with our children. Goodness, so. Yeah. Uh, how long ago was that? Uh, that was three years ago. Okay. Yeah. So does it still make sense to actually mine with those machines or can you get the same benefit out of it or no? Uh, sure. So it's not as profitable okay. uh, for, you know, uh, for some uh, coins. You know, for example, Ethereum is where we started and ah. uh, Ethereum has, it's still very profitable to mine with a GPU, but not as much because the mining rewards have been cut a few times uh, over the, over the years. And, you know, there's an ASIC on the, uh, on the Ethereum network. So it sort of increased the difficulty and reduced the profitability, but there are, there are coins that you can mine with the GPU. Yeah, <laughs> are there other sure. coins that you're looking at right now that you're mining? Sure. I mine uh, Ravencoin right yeah, now, sure. uh, which is, you know, sort of for a couple of reasons. One, I want to support the, the network and two, um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, you know, Ravencoin because it's a very, you know, it's an open source decentralized uh, platform and it just suits my sort of inclinations. Um, so I, I mine Raven, we, you know, for GPUs that aren't very good at mining Raven. Um, 
uh, I still mine Ethereum and, you know, some other things here and there, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have a medium size, you know, by, by mining operation standards, we're small. But, you know, we've got a good, uh, we've got a good setup that okay. we've built over time. <laughs> There's always, and really for me, it was about the tech. I mean, I wanted to learn. It's not about, yeah. you know, marginal, you know, m- you know, money that I make from mining. For me, you know, the, the, the reason that I really got started to mine and started digging into it was because um, I, I, you know, gave me a window into the beginnings of learning about the technology. So it's you guys haven't built something as big as that. Was it Ant Pool or something like that over in China, which is like huge? No, not even close. Okay, <laughs> not, not yet. Not maybe close. someday. Yeah, the kids. You have four kids, so they can all start building these things every day. Exactly. Get their A plus well, certification. See, about the kids, that's what's cool. You know, cool about it. You know, my my son for his science project, right, used uh, the the gaming PC as a launch pad for him to. He built his own mining rig. That's right. Uh, you know, a six uh, six GPU mining rig, wow. and he built it completely himself. And, uh, you know, used, he learned how to use Linux to do it. And, uh, and you know, I, I helped him a little bit, but he did that for a science project. And it, it's great because for me, you know, that speaks to the essence of decentralization, yeah. right? When yeah. you have a kid, you know, starting from a gaming PC and then moving on to a six GPU rig. Uh, and he paid me back for it too. You know, he, out of his mining rewards, he paid me back for the, for the GPUs and for the, and for the motherboard. So oh my goodness. Uh, it's, I just think that I thought that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so is this how he's going to finance his uh, education? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. You think this stuff's going to be around for a while? I do. Okay. You know, my personal interest, and this isn't you know a commentary on the industry in general, but my personal interest is in blockchain projects, right? So not tokens. Token is a you know has a little bit of a uh, you know the nomenclature it gets a little bit confusing, right? So, but when, when I'm talking about tokens right now, I'm talking about things like ERC twenty tokens, yes. ERC seven twenty one yep. tokens, things that ride on on the blockchain through a smart contract or otherwise, not things that are you know uh, tied to the blockchain itself, uh, like Ethereum and like you know Bitcoin, like Ravencoin, mm-hmm. uh, Monero, uh, Zcash, others. So um, you know, I think that. You know, Bitcoin, from my perspective, is in terms of the exchange of value, the gold standard. Um, there are other coins uh, and projects that have, you know, that that are blockchain projects that I think, you know, have some longevity to them, right? So Zcash, I find interesting personally just because of the technology underlying right. the, you know, the privacy features, especially with some of the new things they're doing with, you know, no trusted setup, which is, you know, coming soon. Um, Ravencoin, obviously, I love because uh, you know because of the asset features um, that Ravencoin allows. So uh, you know, I, I find those projects to be interesting because they solve a problem, right? And they use a decentralized blockchain at the same time. Um, and I'm a little bit less interested in in sort of ERC twenty tokens, seven twenty one tokens being used for you know as securities issuances and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, but you know, I think as with any you know, when you're talking about those sorts of tokens, the ones that will survive are the ones that, you know, relate to projects that solve a real need. Um, but I view those types of tokens more along the lines of, you know, a, a, a share certificate. I mean, you know, the share certificate isn't what's important when you're dealing with a company, it's the company. Right. Right. So um, that's sort of how I view those things. There are some really interesting projects, though, that, you know, are, are based off of Ethereum smart contracts and uh, fall into a little bit of a different category. But the short answer to your question is, I think, you know, as with any industry, especially a new industry, an innovative industry, um, 
there are going to be some that survive and there are going to be many, many that don't, just like the dot-com. Yeah, absolutely the yeah. same thing. So there's so many different things you brought up here that I, I can't wait to dive into. Uh, one is definitely Monero and Zcash. So yeah. uh, what is that solving and, and what problems can that bring out in terms of like um, anti-money laundering? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, fr- there are upsides, there are downsides, there are all sorts of policy issues. This is actually, you know, in the course that I, that I teach, these are the things we love to talk about. Right. So um, uh, on the one hand, right, um, there are, you know, there are downsides to having what should be private transactions on a public ledger. Right. Um, now, Bitcoin, for example, is, um, you know, anonymous. Pseudo-anonymous, right? Pseudo-anonymous, yeah. but not private. Correct. So if you can tie in you know, a particular address to an IP address or to a person, to a real human email being. Address, email address. Email address, anything you... Uh, you know the identity of that person, and then you know every transaction that touched in and out of that wallet. Now, um, I, you know I, I view that as a little bit of a you know sort of a, a negative thing from a privacy perspective. I don't want every transaction that I do known by the public, uh, even if I'm going to Seven Eleven and right. buying a soda. Yep. Now, um, on the other hand, I mean, and you see things like whale watching, where you know you have tweets that come out that say this person, Just, you know, this yeah. address moved. You know, thousand Bitcoin. I, I don't think that's yeah. necessarily a good thing. So privacy coins solve for that. On the flip side, which you raised, uh, are the you know regulatory AML um, KYC type issues that are they have importance, right? You know, um, uh, we we don't want. Uh, and and it would be, it is illegal for you know rogue regimes to be using uh, you know our financial system or the Bitcoin system or any other system uh, to transact value uh, in a way that evades or escapes uh, the, you know the laws. So it's a, it's a balancing act, and this is what you know this is the policy discussion. You know you have both things; they are to some degree mutually inconsistent. And um, and you know uh, what is going to happen to Monero and Zcash? You know there there are two ways to go for these projects that they're going to start to have um, you know, these privacy projects, they're going to start to have, uh, you know, I mean, Zcash does have components that allow, you know, a public transaction and privacy when needed, um, or they're going to they're going to sort of go go underground. Um, and uh, I think, you know, regulators need to pay attention to this because there is value to society from not having every transaction for every person, uh, uh, you know, publicly displayed. I mean, if you look at what a blockchain is, what is a blockchain? It is a transaction of a series of, of digits. It's hex code. And uh, it's, it allows you to take uh, a, a series of those digits, that hex code, and send it from peer to peer. Right. Right. Yep. So that can we can all agree that that hex code represents value, or we can agree that that hex code represents something else, a blockchain asset, an interest in a real world asset, whatever. It can be a message. It can be an encrypted message. Um, you know, there is an analog out there for that. It's called the post office, <laughs> right? And True. when I take something and I lick the envelope and I stick it in the envelope and I put a stamp on it and I send it in the mail, I do not expect that anyone will be reading that other than the recipient. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and sometimes when you, especially when you do blockchain things and you order things from foreign countries, sometimes mm-hmm. they come opened. Right. And that's sort of what you know customs does, because when you send something internationally, you don't have those same sorts of protections. But when I put something in the mail, I expect that nobody will ever be reading that piece of mail other than the recipient. And this is an analog to me. You know, if I send someone a series of digits, I expect the same degree of privacy. That's the one side of the policy issue. And the other side of the policy issue is exactly as you've described. I mean, you know, 
that creates issues with things like rogue regimes uh, uh, using the technology for for improper ends. I tend to think that you you know you um, you you address this by addressing the endpoints, right? So if someone is doing something wrong, okay, that's a human being that's doing something wrong, and you can still get that human being, and you can still stop them from doing what's wrong. Um, to some degree, I think requiring every transaction to be sort of publicly splayed out there is um, a bit like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But that's just a policy view. Yeah, no, no, I think yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me, no question. Um, okay, so possibly another angle at all this, uh, when, it, when we're talking about distributed ledgers or blockchains, is sort of the tokenization of assets, yeah. right? Um, which is coming. Uh, we're starting to see it already. But it's the idea, like even a painting that you might have, you'd like to potentially tokenize that or a building for sale. We're starting to see that, right? Sure. What, what's your angle on that? Do you think this is something that's definitely going to take on? And take so off? I don't know if you know this because we're speaking, this is practical law. We're speaking, you know, basically because I'm a lawyer and, and teach this stuff, but I also have, uh, you know, a startup. Okay. And what my startup does is uh, tokenizes assets on the blockchain. This is Mango Farm? Mango Farm. Yeah. All right. So you know about Mango I Farm. I do. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I have a lot of views on this and it's something that I'm keenly interested in. I actually think it's the next, it's the next big wave. Because, you know, Bitcoin sort of frees up peer-to-peer transaction of value. But, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain itself, you wouldn't necessarily want that blockchain to be used for other things like tokenizing assets. Um, you know, there, there are reasons for this. Blockchain bloat. Uh, it's not really the core purpose of Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, to, in order to do transactions like that, you know, it requires the sending of actual Bitcoin, which has value. Um, whole host of reasons. So there are some solutions that ride on the Bitcoin blockchain, like Liquid, right? The Liquid Network, mm-hmm. which is a blockstream project that sort of you peg in to the system. The system is not Bitcoin, but so you're tied to. The, so is this a side chain? It's a side fork. Chain. It's, yeah. a, it's a side. No, it's really side chain. Okay. And, you know, you peg into it. It's a fixed exchange rate. Okay. You peg in, and once you peg in, you can do things like create assets, right? So that's one solution. Uh, and this is, a, you know, I'm talking about the technology. I'll talk about the sort of the principles in a minute. But uh, the other solution is, you know, another solution is Ravencoin, which is its own blockchain. It's based on a code fork of Bitcoin. And uh, it really allows the sort of simplified creation of, uh, of assets that ride on the blockchain. So when we were talking before and I said that hex code, right. uh, you know, can be value. We can all agree on that. It can also be a representation of things like legal documentation that ties the, the the transaction on the blockchain, the asset, to something in the real world. So that's the tech. What interests me, because I'm a lawyer and I have this startup and I'm interested in blockchain development, yeah. is the intersection between the two, right? The, the you know, ha, ha, what's the proper way to, to, to lock that token to a real world asset like a painting legally? And then technologically, what's the best way to do it, to allow the peer-to-peer transaction of ownership interests and assets? So it's fascinating. And I I really do think this is in many industries, not just securities. Securities are, uh, you know, sort of intangible assets. They're they're not, uh, they don't exist in the real world. They're creatures of statute and they represent ownership interests in a thing that doesn't, you know, doesn't exist. It's a, it's a shell. It's a red weld on the shelf. Right. uh, In Delaware. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit easier because then you can, you know, create rights and interests, you know, by using paper, um, a little bit different when you're talking about something like a painting, 
because first the painting is possessed, right? Someone actually holds it in there. It's like your Picasso. It's a big, yeah, you have a Picasso in your house, yeah. right? <laughs> we all do. I, 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 yeah, I don't. <laughs> um, but you take one of my, you know, very uh, inexpensive paintings and, and, uh, and, you know, if you, you have a possessory interest, you have a bundle of rights, right? Going back to property law. And, you know, the question intrigues me and I think about it a lot. Um, you know, how do you divest that bundle of rights from the asset itself and then reposit it on blockchain? can't use contract for it. Why? Because a contract requires offer and acceptance. It's a bargain for exchange. The initial tokenization of an asset, there's no other party. Right. Right. So contracts don't quite solve all the issues around it. And if I have, uh, you know, a contract, if you and I, if I tokenize my piece of art, and I like to call them blockchain assets, actually not tokens, because I think tokens have a connotation well, right just now. a different connotation. Okay. But if I want to send that to you and we have a contract between the two of us, either on the blockchain or off, that that token represents the ownership interest in the asset. That contract doesn't run to third parties, doesn't run to the next person that you tr uh, transfer that asset to. And it creates all sorts of jurisdictional hurdles, right? Right. So, you know, what jurisdiction gets to decide the the uh, you know disputes over that bundle of rights and obligations that I purported to put on that token that you agreed were on that token and that third parties have no relationship to. So um, I have some you know potential solutions for this. I've I've thought about it a lot, but it's I just from a from a lawyer's perspective and particularly from a policy perspective and a sort of academic perspective, I find it fascinating because oh, it really just goes definitely. down to the roots of property law. It goes down to you know sort of the nature of alienation of property. And uh, there are no systems for it. No, I know. That's the most, it's the most fascinating time to be looking at this sort of thing. Yeah, it's yeah, unbelievable. So where's regulation at this point when you start to see these things? Where are we at? What's happening? Well, so we can break this up into some pieces, right? So okay. on, on the tokenizing real world assets piece, um, there really isn't much out there. Um, you know, there, there are statutes out there like Delaware where, you know, uh, interest, certain, certain interests uh, that are reposited on the blockchain are considered to be property. Uh, Wyoming uh, does this as well. Um, Wyoming is actually really thinking these, these issues through as far as I can see, and they're doing great work over there. But one of the things that they're considering is um, having these special purpose depository institutions that allow, this is a draft bill, but that okay. allow... Um, you know, people to these institutions to have sort of in their warehouse real world assets and then issue tokens that relate to those things that are reposited in the warehouse. That's that's a great step, but it's not what I'm talking about. OK. Right. So what I'm talking about is for me and you to be able to do it. Right. And uh, so I, I went out there last year and talked about this for a little bit. And I into I, Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. OK. And I think it's a it's a really good idea. Um, which is, you know, if, if you or I want to create uh, an LLC or a corporation, right, we can just go to the Delaware Secretary of State uh, or your you know, whatever state you live in. And uh, it's pretty easy. You fill out a form, uh, you pay some money. And there's this body of law that surrounds that, uh, that thing that you're creating. It's a, I mean, the, the phrase is, it's a creature of statute. Huh. And creature is actually, a, you know, a, an interesting term, it right? Is. It means something is animated. It, it sort of becomes it, it, it. It's given given life by a statute. Yeah. But once it's given that life, then then you um, 
then you know there are rules and that sort of surround it, right? So the Delaware Court of Chancery is a court that's designed specifically to deal with rights and obligations between the, the parties in interest to uh, to an LLC or a corporation that's created in Delaware. And uh, uh, there's the internal affairs doctrine that no matter where you hold that interest, if you hold it in New Jersey or New York or London, right? Delaware law is what governs. So what we were talking about before with rights, rights and obligations, yeah. traveling with the interest, that's the perfect model. So the idea is to have a similar sort of filing system where you walk in and you say, I have this asset, I want to tokenize it or I want to fractionalize it. Here's my $100, please give me a form that says, you know, a little sealed document that says this token goes with this asset. And I take that and I lock it on the asset on the blockchain. And then from that day forward, this can then start to create a body of law around the rights and obligations with respect to own, own tokens and that sort of thing. I think it's a great idea, but you know, it's probably gonna be a long road before <laughs> things like that get adopted. Yeah, why is it Wyoming? I know uh, there's 14 laws, I think they've actually, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. Um, do you want my, you know, yeah, my Doug Peppy's personal opinion? Yeah. Because I think Caitlin Long is a dynamo. She's amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. And uh, and she's just really sharp. And um, I think she just gets it. And, um, you know, there are others there that, that are, you know, Chris Land, others that are really, um, you know, just just on these issues and thinking them through. And it's not sort of driven from some preconceived notion. What I witnessed when I went out there, which was the only time I've gone out there, but I went to one of their task force meetings and I just I was amazed at how. I've never seen a state legislative committee think through the issues in the way that I saw the people on that dais thinking them through, asking really on point questions. It was really it was it was incredible to see. I had good fortune of uh, moderating a panel at Harvard with Caitlin on it. Mm -hmm. And she you could see everyone just like leaned into the conversation. Yep. This was probably a year ago at this point. But she was so staunch in her beliefs about this is what we need to do. We're going to do it in Wyoming. All these small businesses are going to start coming to Wyoming. Yep. And hopefully that like it'll catch a cold. Uh, it'll sneeze and everyone else will catch that cold. Right. So it'll sort of spread. We'll see. Well, well, I mean, look, the difference is, you know, a lot of people say things like that. And she actually did it. Yeah, I know. Pushed it through really quickly yeah. too. I'm very, you know, personally very impressed with her. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, no question. Um, all right. There's so many other things to talk about. I'm trying to think what makes the most sense. Libra. <laughs> I yeah. really want to get your perspective on that. I mean, it's something that I was hoping would take off. So Facebook's coming out, of course, with right. Libra. They have their own cryptocurrency, and it makes total sense from my perspective to have essentially a world currency which is yeah what bitcoin is now but this is something that you'd automatically have two to three you know, 2.5 billion people sure uh, in their hands almost immediately once they rolled it out mm -hmm. how long will that eat? do you think that's something that's feasible that a company like facebook could do at this stage um that's a really interesting question so there are a bunch of different layers to this issue if you think about what, what the central banking system is, I mean, it was a system that was sort of put together and constructed by banks, um, historically constructed by banks to sort of provide a, uh, you know, a, uh, a means to transact value that is, you know, sort of, it, it's, it, it's a bit like nodes in a, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it's got government sanction and support. But putting aside those sort of, those sort of issues, I, it, Libra is an interesting concept. Um, I, I, I think that it it has already run into problems because of the fear that, you know, I don't think nation states are necessarily 
cons- you know, afraid of Bitcoin taking over the entire world's financial system. Um, uh, you know, Facebook has a lot of users and you've seen the reaction as soon as it came out. I mean, you started to see regulators uh, at, at the highest levels uh, basically jumping on the project. You have, you have senators and congresspeople um, sending letters. You have, you know, European uh, bodies. Uh, central bankers talking about it, oh, yeah. you know, in, in a very negative light because I think there's concern. Now, I don't personally, um, you know, I don't think that's the way that, uh, at least in democratic systems, I don't think that's the way that uh, regulatory bodies and and our representatives should go about this process. Uh, but you can clearly see it. Um, now, personally, now this is not a policy type of uh, uh, of view that I'm expressing. Personally, I personally am more interested in the decentralized systems. Um, and I think, you know, one of the thing that one of the things that animates that is I think that there's, you know, a lot of value to be had to society from having um, transactions on a peer to peer basis that don't have intermediate third parties involved. Because intermediate third parties always, I mean, it's just the nature of an intermediate third party. When you have a broker between two transactions, two people wanting to transact, that broker takes a piece. Takes a chunk. You got it. And, you know, Bitcoin solves that problem. Right. Not, not completely. I mean, you have mining fees and you have, you know, you have, um, you know, it's sort of the reward from the system in the form of inflation that reduces the value, marginally reduces the value to each holder of, of a Bitcoin. But um, I, just that sort of system, I think that's the revolutionary ingredient in this, in, in this, in, in these blockchain projects. It's not... From my perspective, it's not, you know, if you put every bank in America and in the world together as you know a set of master nodes in a blockchain system, all you're really doing is taking the Excel database that they each individually have, and you're sort of broadening out between it, yeah. them and sharing it. Yep. Which may have there may be real benefits, like you know the CLS system for foreign exchange. You know, I could see something like that having real value. Um, uh, you know, uh, overnight repo type type situations, but but you know, in terms of the you know where I see the magic. Uh, it's in decentralized blockchains, blockchains that aren't controlled by you know um, trusted groups. But doesn't that fundamentally disrupt or threaten governments around the world? I don't think it needs to. No, no. I mean, I, I don't see this as this you know sort of you know epic battle between you know it's a tool. It's a tool that allows me to send you something that we agree has value without having to pay somebody else right. to do it. And we truly own what's on there, right? You know, I, it, I'm always fascinated by, you know, the notion of when I put money in the bank or, or when I own a security, uh, you know, I, I don't actually own it. I own the right to say, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 somebody else has ownership of that. And I, I basically have the right to sue them if I ask them for it and they don't give it to me. There you go. And yeah. it's an unsecured obligation, right? So, I mean, the, that's Bitcoin solves that. So I think there's something to be said for, you know, allowing people. And I, I don't even view it from the perspective of allowing people to do this. I think people have the right to um, to have uh, transactions between each other that don't have to go through a government controlled system. And I, I totally agree with you. I'm in the same boat, but I still think fundamentally that it's going to take a long time before the Definitely. governments around the world are like, oh, we're going to be okay with this. There's going to be so much Definitely. pushback. 
but you're gonna see it happen organically, right? What you're actually gonna see, I believe, is that you're gonna see uh, random businesses, startups around the world that come up with something and they're able to then leverage that technology to hopefully be able to then circulate whatever it is, be it assets, be mm-hmm. it monetary systems, whatever the case it is, but we'll see. I mean, it's gonna be fascinating. Look, I agree. You couldn't sit in a room like this when ARPANET <laughs> was, you know, a couple of years old. Okay, the internet. And, and, and predict all of the value that would be unlocked in the world, all of the efficiencies that would be created in the world, the, the degree of informational exchange, the revolutionary impact on news, um, on the, sh- the exchange of information. I, you couldn't predict that at that time. And what I'm concerned about is, you know, this space needs room to grow because some people see it, you know, you, you have somebody that walk into a room and it's got blank walls, right? Some people see what the walls will look like. Right. You know, your average architect will, will <laughs> see, you know, sort of what that room will look like in this scenario and that scenario and that scenario. And some people see blank walls. And I just think it's, there's a real danger in uh, trying to sort of regulate these sort of interesting and, and innovative concepts um, uh, at this time when we don't really know what their potential is. I think the better course is to see, seek out problems and, uh, and deal with the problems, right? So there was clearly a problem with, uh, you know, ICOs. And the SEC, I think, appropriately stepped in and started to regulate that space. Um, but some of the things we're talking about, I mean, there, there, you know, there isn't a problem to solve yet. <laughs> yeah, no question. I mean, so if you start thinking about like um, what people have moved to, let's go back to quickly to the cryptocurrency sure. world where people may use um, Coinbase or Kraken or yeah. Binance. But now you're starting to see more decentralized exchanges. Right. Um, it seems like because the Coinbases of the world they're actually centralized, right? So you're basically centralizing all of this, but now it's hopefully moving to a different direction. Does that make sense? Do you think that's a natural progression for some of these things or? Well, yeah, I mean, it can go one way or the other. And I think regulation is going to have a big, uh, you know, role to play in where it ultimately goes. And the reason I say that is because, um, you know, exchanges, there's a, there's a phrase in crypto, which, you know, some of the listeners probably know and all of them might not, which is, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. And what does that mean? That means that the the ownership of of Bitcoin is dependent on the ability to unlock Bitcoin that is in your address. And the only way to do that is if you own the private key. Right. Um, And, you know, these exchanges like you've described, Coinbase, Kraken, they they um, they hold the keys and essentially they have a database that, you know, transfers between uh, accounts that are within the system. And the only time you actually get your crypto is, you know, when it's sent to to an address, to an account that you hold the private keys for. Um, the decentralized systems you're talking about, the DEXs, yes. um, are systems in which you hold your keys and you can still transact. Now, KYC, AML, those those issues come into play because there's a you know, especially if, when the travel rule starts coming into play, when you know um, when they start onboarding travel rule uh, issues at the Coinbase's of the world, and how do DEXs do that? And how does the Bitcoin blockchain even satisfy those requirements? I mean, they're they're really interesting you know, technological and legal issues. Um, Where do I see the industry wanting to go? Decentralized. I'm not quite sure where the industry is going to go. And we might have two systems, a system of people who, uh, you know, use peer-to-peer decentralized systems because they're outside, you know, not for business, but for for personal use, uh, who fall outside of, you know, the scope of some of those rules. 
and um, you know institutions and organizations basically uh, you know, conglomerating into uh, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the equivalent of the system that we have with broker dealers and and uh, and and securities accounts. So one other topic I'm really curious about from your perspective is around digital identity, yeah, self-sovereign identity. Um, where do you think that could go? You think that that's reasonable that that will actually take off at some point? I'm, you know, I'm not. It's that digital identity is not something that I've spent a great deal of time thinking about um, because I spend so much time thinking about blockchain assets. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. But you know, I I, 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 I did put together a little um, sort of method for uh, sort of locking in your personal identity onto a, a, an encrypted um, blockchain asset. Hmm. Uh, and what did you, that look like? So it's pretty neat, right? So um, I'm actually working on this. I was working on it two minutes before you came oh, here, fuck. and I'm going to be working on it all night tonight um, <laughs> because we're trying to put it out, uh, uh, a different piece of it. So it's it's a neat system, actually. It's, uh, uh, it, it's a method for allowing a sender, uh, Alice, to send something to a recipient, Bob, um, on the blockchain that has a, a, an attachment to it. We'll call it an attachment. Okay. It's an IPFS hash, but it's an okay. we'll call it an attachment. And that attachment is um, is uh, publicly accessible because it's on a public blockchain. Well, this is a system to allow Alice to encrypt it to Bob's uh, it's PGP key, but encryption key, um, so that uh, Alice can send a uh, an, an, can send a will, can send a, a legal document, can send whatever to Bob uh, in an, uh, you know in an encrypted way. So it's it's private information on a public blockchain. Um, but the piece of it that relates to uh, identity is that Bob is basically, in order to do this system, Bob is creating an attachment to his address. And that attachment has, in this instance that we're describing, has a, a PGP public key that Alice can access. But the system is extensible, right? So Bob can attach to that address an, identi an encrypted identity document. Um, uh, you know, uh, all, all sorts of things. But an encrypted identity doc document is, is interesting to me because it allows, this is maybe one, you know, possible avenue for dealing with the travel rule because you can have KYC information on an encrypted basis on the blockchain in a way that you can send it from person to person and have it be decrypted on the other side, but only sender and recipient can see it. So anyway, that's, that's what we're working on. Right oh, now, it's wow. just the encryption method, but um, uh, that's where I want to go with it. Does some of that stuff need to be, does it need to come from like something that's verifiable, like the uh, Department of Homeland Security? So I, I went to some event recently and they talked about um, how essentially all of our social security numbers are, are, are ruined for the most part because yeah. half of them are out there, whether in the dark web or sure. maybe China has or something along those lines. Sure. Um, so we're at a point where they're going to have to issue a new one and they may do that via a blockchain. So let's say the Department of Homeland Security says, yep, you're going to get an ID, I'm going to get an ID. Um, but it's going to be issued through the blockchain. You'll get both private and public key. You'll hold on to it. You'll I, be the master. I wonder if they're going to use ZK Snarks to shield it from <laughs> <laughs> for the privacy component. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> we'll anyway, see. I'm sorry. No, I, no, no, no. Good point. <laughs> um, so the idea is that you actually need something that's trusted to to even create the identity. So you need something coming from something that you can verify, which would be maybe the federal government, maybe a state or local government, birth certificate, whatever the case is. And then you can start to build out this profile. Sure. 
Does sure. that make sense? It does. It does. I mean, you know, there's always there's always a delicate um, sort of back and forth between you know government issued identity. Uh, you know, in the '60s, people you know were up in arms about the notion of you know even social security cards. I believe my mother always used to tell me that I wasn't alive, but um, you know the pendulum swings. Um, uh, but you can have you know you, you, sure you can have a government issued identity document uh, like your driver's license, right? Uh, encrypted and locked on a blockchain, and uh, and use that. To um, to identify yourself, uh, you know, Ravencoin has a great new feature. It's not quite out yet. It's on testnet, but it's really brilliant. Um, it was, I think it was the brainchild of a person by the name of Tron Black, who is okay. one of the you know one of the lead developer. He is the lead developer of Ravencoin um, and a super smart guy. So, uh, but it's called Tags and Restricted Assets. Okay, I haven't heard of that one. So it's it's interesting. So um, you you know you can create a uh, you can create a restriction, a restricted asset, and it's got you know um, a unique identifier in it that says that this restricted asset can only go to addresses with this tag. Um, so call the tag a you know hashtag right hashtag KYC. So uh, you can um, only transact in that asset if you are a person with that KYC hashtag. Now, uh, I think what's envisioned, I mean, at least in the original paper that he put out, the Medium article that he put out with it, is that there would be issuers of these tags. The issuer would say, you know, KYC tag, and then there would be these, you know, bodies out there, these, you know, whether they're uh, governmental organizations or, you know, there would be KYC bodies that would issue those KYC tags. And, you know, it's really just neat. I, I haven't really delved into it all that much because I've been worried so much on, on this encryption <laughs> <laughs> system. But, uh, but I mean, that's that for me, that's the next step. Okay. Yeah. Um, smart contracts. I'm curious to hear your perspective about how long you think it'll take before they're actually starting to be used within the legal space? I mean, I think they already are. You do? Yeah, I mean, they're starting to be used. You have companies like Securitize. Uh, they don't. They have their own smart contract. I, I, I haven't really looked at it in detail, but I did eyeball their smart contract. Um, uh, that you know, they're, they're issuing securities uh, using using their own smart contract. Um, the, so, I mean, there's not widespread usage. But like contingent ones, so that um, yeah. it would need an oracle, something mm -hmm. that was like a trusted source saying, oh, yeah, this happened on this day. So like a, a Amazon stock is at $2,500 on January 1st, yep. then sell or something along those lines. Some very simplistic, right? Um, with, are we close to They're using that now or no? No. So, okay. so look, I think I, there are a lot of projects that are... Um, that, that are I mean, this space is still very much working out the technology. I mean, it's in a phase where it's a lot of people build for building sake. But I've seen a little bit of a shift. I mean, it's it's the projects are now starting to come out that are uh, uh, I, focusing on a real world problem and uh, trying to solve that real world problem. Um, I think that's the phase where I mean we're beyond CryptoKitties now, and yeah. uh, uh, which was awesome. I mean, yeah, you know, great idea. Um, uh, non fungible tokens on Ethereum was you know pretty interesting, revolutionary stuff, and they proved out the concept with that. That's where we were, I think, a year and a half ago. I think the proof of concept is now starting to transition into uh, you know proof of market, and uh, and there are companies that are do doing these things, you know, both on uh, on Ethereum and on other blockchain projects. You know, right. I mean, there's a company on Ravencoin that that uh, sells wine futures. Oh, really? Yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah, okay. it's called Vincent. It's pretty neat, <laughs> and uh, they sell it. You know, they have these um, uh, you know interests in future uh, barrels of wine that they tokenize. Um, they create a blockchain asset for. 
and uh, and then sell those uh, blockchain assets. I should look into that. It's, uh, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. For all the venophiles out there. Last question I have for you is around um, lawyers. What do you tell lawyers that are looking into this space now? Like, How do they get involved in it? How do they look to uh, invest in this space so they have a better understanding and potentially could have clients in the future on this? Sure. So uh, what's interesting um, to me is, you know, I'm a lawyer, but I'm a litigator and I don't advise clients in the blockchain space, but I teach yeah. blockchain law and technology and policy. What I'm teaching the students, the focus of the course, the reason I'm doing it is um, you know, I think I, I have something to offer those students in the sense that, uh, you know, I have an economics background. I, um, you know, I, I, I'm a developer. Uh, I wouldn't consider myself an expert coder, but I am definitely a blockchain developer. And, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer and I'm interested in all of those aspects of it. So I'm teaching this course to show them the technology. I think it's really, really important. I don't think you can properly, you know, talk about the policy implications of a rule one way or the other, or how the law should be applied to a particular project, unless you really understand the difference between the technological features of projects. Regulating re Libra and regulating Bitcoin are two completely different things. And the reason is because of the technology. One is an open source peer-to-peer -peer blockchain project that's proof of work mined. Yes. Right. And yeah. the other is a closed source, well, you know, quasi closed source, um, you know, uh, project that has basically master nodes and, and how you approach those from a regulatory perspective and a policy perspective, it's completely different. And you don't really understand that unless you understand the tech. So uh, my answer, direct answer to your question is, I think, you know, do what I did, read everything. I can't, I cannot stop reading everything that comes my way about blockchain, even though I do not practice in this it's a field. rabbit hole. It really is. It's a rabbit hole and it's so fascinating on so many really levels. Is. So that, that would be my advice to, you know, younger lawyers. It's what I tell my students. I send them emails. I, I send them, you know, I put post stuff on the, on the boards, uh, you know, at, uh, at GW uh, about new things that come out because I think that's the best way to learn. No, I totally agree. And I, I've had the good fortune of uh, guest lecturing over at Fordham Law School on Great. the same sort of topics. And yeah. see people are just like, what is this how it's going to work potentially like and they really want to get an understanding of it so i think right now it's all about education i agree. trying to open people's eyes to what's out there and there's nothing better than seeing the uh the light bulb go on somebody who doesn't even know yeah. what blockchain is and I, my favorite talks are talks to people who when you ask the question and i always do uh how many of you have heard of bitcoin you know a lot of people raise their hands how many of you have used it usually you get one two three five yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I love watching the faces in the audience as they start to understand, wow, this really isn't such, you know, I hear about Silk Road and I hear about this and I hear about that. And I hear, you know, it's not about any of that stuff. It, it's really a, a pretty revolutionary concept, um, but you have to break it down for people uh, who have never heard of it. Yeah, no question. Doug, yeah. thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. Really appreciate it. I really enjoyed uh, participating in this. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. Please join me for our exciting upcoming episodes where amazing people and their remarkable stories meet the cross-section of the law and technology. If you would like, please give us a rating. 
feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz. That's J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.